Today our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. With me tonight is my very special guest, Colonel Douglas McGregor, U.S. Army retired. He's a graduate of West Point with a Ph.D. in international relations. He was decorated for valor after leading troops in the Battle of 73 Easting during Operation Desert Storm. He is author of Transformation Under Fire, Revolutionizing the Way America Fights, which is mandatory reading for U.S. military officers. And uh, he has a new book coming out. Warriors Rage, The Battle of 73 Easting. And uh, what we'd all kind of like to know, uh, Colonel, uh, is what is it like to fight these wars and be at the front with the troops? Well, uh, one good way to find out is definitely to read Warriors Rage, because that's uh, told from my vantage point in a tank when I was in the 2nd Squadron, 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. And it, it, it goes through several days of uh, actions and culminates with the what turned out to be the largest tank battle in the history of the United States Army since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think people will find it very interesting because what what you see, and at the time I was a major leading two uh, armored cavalry troops uh, in an 1,100-man squadron. They were the two lead troops in an attack. And and what you experience at that level and what you see turns out to be very, very different from what the generals uh, and senior officers at higher levels think is actually happening. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, really, uh, you know, a subject for the book. It, it, it juxtaposes, on the one hand, uh, what the soldiers, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, and majors, and so forth are doing with what the generals think is happening. And uh, there's uh, almost no connection whatsoever, unfortunately. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. You know, we, uh, we all watch TV, and we've seen some of the movies and depictions of different wars. And really, we get so many different images of war. We don't really know what it's like. And, and these wars that America is fighting now, you know, we, we have these big battles, and we have very few casualties. Uh, but uh, but it's hard to imagine that you your tank formation could plow into the Republican Guard and not lose any tanks. Am I understanding that right? Well, we lost one armored fighting vehicle, a Bradley, and mm -hmm. we had one man on that crew killed and the others were wounded. And we were fortunate that uh, we had very light casualties. But I think it's important for the audience to understand that, that something we grasped fairly quickly in the desert in 1991 that the generals never understood and were not willing to admit publicly when they did find it out, and that was that the enemy we faced really was very weak. We were not fighting Russians or Germans. Uh, we weren't fighting Turks or Koreans or Chinese. We were fighting Muslim Arabs who were certainly very valorous. In other words, these, these people did not lack for courage, and they, they fought as hard as they could, but they simply weren't very well organized. Mm. And they had enormous difficulty uh, orchestrating any sort of coherent defensive action against us. But the other thing that I think is important for Americans to understand is they hear so much about uh, what I would call silver bullet technology, you know, super weapons placed in the hands of soldiers that will suddenly 
eliminate the need for what I would call the human element, that somehow or another magically people are going to know everything everywhere all the time about the enemy and themselves. And there's not much evidence for that. And in 1991, despite all of the public claims and the discussions on television, what we experienced was uh, very close to what people have seen for certainly the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years in combat. And that is we found ourselves in a sandstorm. We were advancing through a sandstorm. And as you pretty accurately uh, depicted it, we plowed into the enemy. And the enemy was uh, surprised to see us. We were not completely surprised to find them. But the fight that ensued was not uh, the kind of fight that people heard about. It was a, a situation in which we attacked and we fought on the move. It was a cavalry uh, assault, if you will. And we killed people anywhere from uh, 800, 900 meters down to 50 meters and even 5 meters. In other words, people were being shot at at point-blank range. Hmm. Uh, tanks were destroyed with, you know, with only perhaps 100, 200 meters between, you know, the advancing tanks that we had and the, and the armored fighting vehicles and the enemy tanks. So it was, it was very much, as one officer said at the time, a knife fight. And as I try to explain to people, this was more like a knife fight inside a telephone booth than the sort of long-range, push-button, electronic war that people imagine. And you were very fortunate to get the element of surprise. Yeah, uh, but I also think there was something else involved, and that's what I try to spend some time in the book explaining, and that is that the force that I was with, the force that I led forward, the soldiers, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains were of extremely high quality. We had trained very differently from the rest of the units uh, in the theater, to be frank. We were not trained the same way uh, because I was training the formation, and uh, we, we did things very differently. And as a result, uh, we had a lot of people who had to make a lot of decisions very, very quickly at every level. And they all made, with very, very, very few exceptions, extremely good decisions without being told what to do. And I think that was a very important lesson, that if you had a well-trained unit, people could take the initiative because they understood what it was that had to happen. And uh, you get a, a very good appreciation for the intelligence, the courage, the valor of the individual soldier, sergeant, lieutenant, and captain, and an appreciation for the, the really good, solid military decisions that they have to make in the space of only a few seconds in many cases. That's amazing. I, I was surprised in, in reading one of your books. You had this interesting uh, quote, uh, the claim by the U.S. Air Force that air power alone defeated the Iraqi army made in the first flush of victory has not withstood even brief examination. Air power failed to destroy 50% of the Iraqis' armor as advertised, and Iraq never ran out of armor. And you also note that uh, they never broke their communication system, and the bulwark of the Iraqi force, the Republican Guard, sustained only modest damage during the air campaign. That's, that's amazing. The public here in this country, seeing the pictures, had a completely different image of the war. Well, that the quote that you... Uh just cited was extracted from the air power study that was done after the war ended and it's not it's what's interesting about it is that first of all let's understand something the united states air force is a brilliant organization we have the finest air force in the world the finest pilots our aircraft are superb although frankly a lot of them have gotten very very old and and need to be replaced and, and we're going to go through a period of change where more and more of our aircraft will be unmanned and some new mix will emerge. 
But the, the American boat needs to understand the Air Force is superb, no question about it. That's not really the issue. The issue is that when you are flying around at 15, 16, 17,000 feet or 30,000 feet, you launch missiles, you drop bombs, and you see explosions. And your assumption uh, as the pilot looking at this sort of thing is that something important has just happened. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in many cases, that's not true. Uh, during World War II, when, when we finished fighting in France and in Belgium, Teams, historical teams from the United States Army went to the battlefields to try and evaluate, you know, what the damage was that was sustained by the enemy, what destroyed German armor, what destroyed German uh, equipment, and and what killed German soldiers. Mm -hmm. And in the Ardennes, for instance, the claims that were made by air power were just staggering. You know, they they reported destroying hundreds of enemy uh, tanks and, and enemy armored fighting vehicles and trucks and so forth. And when the uh, teams actually arrived on scene and they began to examine these uh, vehicles and equipment. They found that 78% of the damage was done by the Army, by direct fire and U.S. Army artillery. Hmm. That only about uh, 22% of the vehicles showed any sign of having been attacked from the air. And in many cases, there wasn't much evidence that the attacks from the air had really damaged them significantly. So I think I think it, it's really more of a case of the of pilots seeing something, thinking that something has happened, and then we discover later on that it, it was not quite the effect that we thought. And the effect of air power, of course, uh, is to protect your own troops from bombing and to see the battlefield better and to uh, harass the enemy's movements. Well, sure, but but one of the things that air power does so well and that we did not exploit in 1991 and, quite frankly, have not exploited since is air power has the ability in a very short period of time to stun the enemy, in other words, to knock him off balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is this goes all the way back to World War II. This was perfected by the Germans. And the idea was that you came in with the air power, you dropped your munitions, you stunned the enemy, you knocked him off balance, and then you exploited the weakness that you created in terms of coherence on the ground with armor and artillery and, and so forth. Unfortunately, in 1991, we didn't do that. We began these air attacks, air attacks, and the air attacks went on for 40 days. And one of the things that we've also learned over many, many years uh, is that the enemy, regardless of how weak the enemy may be, and the Arab enemy is not particularly strong, uh, the enemy adjusts. He accommodates it. He, he finds a way to live through uh, the damage, and uh, he moves on. And that's essentially what uh, the Iraqi Arabs were able to do. They were able to work around much of the air power because it lasted too long. They became too accustomed to it. It became too predictable. You quoted an Air Force colonel as uh, saying, air power can only do so much. The army must go in on the ground to defeat the enemy, ground forces to finally win the battle. And, of course, what you're saying makes sense. Unless you can get up close and see the enemy in some way and meet the enemy, you don't really know how strong he is or how ready to run away or to fight. Absolutely. That is the, that is the critical point. And there is a tremendous reluctance, and there was in 1991 and there is now, to really close with the enemy and take his measure. And unfortunately, that that creates an, uh, you know enormous problems because it, it allows the enemy to survive. It allows him to escape. So you you don't have the finality that you otherwise would get. And unfortunately, our generals have a, a terrible problem with trying to lead attacks from the rear. 
they never go forward. They're not part of the battle. They don't really see it. They're, they're remote in electronic headquarters and think that because they can see something uh, through a UAV feed, watch it on a, on a video feed on a television, sitting in an armored vehicle remote from the battlefield, that they have a good appreciation for what's happening. That's just not the case. When you were advancing into those uh, Iraqi Republican Guard, what was the intelligence? What were they telling you that you would run into? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the intelligence that we had was mixed. Some of it was uh, relatively accurate in terms of general positioning, but it was a very false picture of the enemy. The problem in the run-up to the war and during the war was that the generals, most of whom had their only experience of warfare was Vietnam. And to be perfectly blunt with you, uh, that meant for many of them 15 minutes of, of firefight in the space of maybe 11 or 12 months in Vietnam. So they, they had not seen the kind of uh, combat that we were about to engage in. They had no experience with it. There'd be no maneuver warfare, if you will, of any kind, uh, in the serious sense that we had experienced it during the Second World War. So as a result, uh, the generals had this very inflated picture of the enemy. They began counting the numbers of tanks and guns and, and missiles and so forth and assumed the, the, the quantity of uh, weapon systems equated to lethality and effectiveness. And the truth was simply very different. They forgot to look at the quality of training, the quality of leadership, and the quality of the individual soldier, his education, uh, his uh, commitment to the nation state, and so forth. You know, Arabs are very family-oriented people. They tend to think in terms of family and tribe, and really not much beyond that. I mean, they're very regional and local uh, you know, Tip O'Neill's old expression, you know, politics are local. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Arab world, all politics are local to the 16th power. Uh, quite frankly, the government uh, is not terribly relevant to the average, average uh, Arab in most of the Islamic world. These states are artificial constructs, the legacies of colonialism. So the notion that you were going to see anybody put up a serious fight uh, in defense of quote-unquote Iraq was something that was grossly exaggerated. The Republican Guard was the only element that was willing to fight, and they were going to fight only as long uh, as they felt that they absolutely had to. They were loyal to Saddam Hussein. They were loyal to him, his regime. But even that loyalty, once it became clear that the battle was hopeless, began to vanish pretty quickly. Now, I know that you, in your book, talk about the kind of uh, error that was made at the end of the 1991 Gulf War. How did it unfold? We were all kind of puzzled in the United States at how suddenly it ended, and uh -huh. and, and President Bush got on TV and, and it told the Iraqi people to rise up against Saddam, and then they rose up and we didn't help them. Well, we, uh, certainly in the second squadron, which in the book is, is called Cougar Squadron, that was our nickname, and that was uh, the call sign that we used on the radio, Cougar. We, we were frankly surprised at how suddenly and, and quickly the whole thing ended. Uh, we led the 7th Corps attack in the 2nd Cavalry for several days, and we saw bits and pieces of action along the way, which was very helpful because uh, the initial forces that we met were Iraqi Army, and they, they weren't terribly good, but it gave us an opportunity to understand what the enemy was about, but also to build confidence in ourselves, because remember, when we went into this, we were all green. We'd had no previous combat experience. Mm -hmm. So that was very helpful. So when we hit the Republican Guard, it was actually going to stand and fight. We were really ready for the fight. 
uh, and uh, they never had a chance to be perfectly blunt uh, when we we went at them. So we were surprised when the war ended because we went through the the Republican Guard troops so quickly, we couldn't understand why we were halted. Uh, the Republican Guard troops that we faced, as we found out later, were actually the rear guard of the Republican Guard Corps that had already begun retreating out of Iraq 24 hours earlier. And we had been held back repeatedly by the chain of command, you know, to follow this meaningless, highly synchronized uh, plan that was irrelevant from the time we uh, crossed into Iraq. And as a result, the generals were very anxious to see this end because I think the generals were always worried that we were facing a much more robust and capable enemy than, than was the case. And I think they, they considered themselves lucky that this had all gone as well as it did, and they were anxious for it to end. The generals themselves, and I include Schwarzkopf and uh, the whole general officer chain of command in this, were the products of many decades of peacetime soldiering. These were Cold War garrison army commanders. These were people that were extremely risk-averse, very conservative, very pessimistic. Uh, they tended to see everything as the glass is always half empty, it's, it's never half full. And uh, every time that you would point to the what you considered to be the innate superiority of your own force and the abilities of your own troops, you were admonished to... Uh, stop talking that way, and then they regaled you with stories of all the great capabilities of the Soviet equipment and the size and lethality of the army that faced you. As a result, I think they were quite anxious to get this thing over with. They they actually never thought that it would go as well as it did, and then they were happy to present themselves as heroic figures to the American people and tell the American people that a great strategic victory had been won when, in fact, that was not the case. Uh, the enemy had largely escaped intact. The generals today will insist that isn't the case, but we know it's the case. Uh, we know that at least 50 to 60,000 of the Republican guards crossed that river unmolested. And uh, they brought a lot of equipment with them, but they were also issued new equipment from stocks on the other side of the river. And uh, the hasty uh, way in which we concluded this uh, peace agreement or this armistice or ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, that uh, Schwarzkopf presided over, conferred great flexibility and independence on the, the Republican Guard forces on the other side. They, they would not be interfered with. They could use attack helicopters and so forth. And so we were all compelled to stand on the Euphrates River near Nasiriya and watch the Republican Guard slaughter what amounted to large numbers of either unarmed civilians or only very lightly armed civilians who were trying to overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime. There was no appreciation for the value of a unit like my own uh, or, or, you know, any, any mobile armored force of five or 10,000 troops crossing the river and easily dispatching whatever it found and moving on Baghdad until, frankly speaking, Saddam Hussein surrendered to us. There was no willingness to do that, to eliminate this regime under Saddam Hussein and his inner family that had created such chaos in the region. But there was no thinking along those lines. It was an all-or-nothing proposition. Either you go in with all hundreds of thousands of men and you occupy the place, uh, thinking that this was somehow or another the solution to the problem, or you don't go at all. So we didn't go at all, and uh, we missed the opportunity to eliminate that regime. And, it, and that's what the book talks about, that this battle, which is such a tribute to the quality uh, of the American soldier and his equipment and the brilliance of this organization and training and discipline and leadership, uh, was for naught. Uh, what we ended up with was something more akin to Antietam, in uh, 1862, where 
McClellan uh, stood there, claimed victory, and of course the Army of Northern Virginia withdrew, and the Civil War went on for three more destructive and, and terrible years. And in our case, the regime lasted for another 12, and it cost us billions of dollars and countless lives, ultimately in Iraq, as a consequence. With me on the program is Douglas McGregor, U.S. Army Colonel, retired, and we are talking about his upcoming book, Warrior's Rage, and we'll be back with more after these messages. WIBG 1020, live, local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, it was one side kick, they blew it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it, we talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. With me is Colonel Douglas McGregor, U.S. Army retired, and his book is Warrior's Rage, uh, The Battle of 73 Easting. I, I can't resist uh, asking you, uh, Colonel McGregor, what is this name, 73 Easting? What is it? Is this a town or a road? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh, the battle was fought in a flat, open desert, uh, just... Uh, Somewhere's in between Kuwait and the Euphrates River in, in southern Iraq, literally out in the middle of nowhere, where there were virtually no terrain features. You might have a little bit of uh, rise here or there, three or four feet, but it was effectively uh, a flat, open, gravelly, sandy desert. And consequently, to establish where we were, we had to use the, the grid lines that we had on the military maps. And an easting is simply a north-south grid line. And you refer to a north-south grid line, particularly as we were oriented to the east, as an easting. And uh, we ended up, uh, we were told initially to halt several times at several different limits of advance, several different grid lines, eastings. And uh, we were told to halt at the 7-0 easting grid line when we were uh, moving forward from the 6-8 easting grid line. And uh, that's when we encountered the enemy, and we ended up attacking right through him. And we ended up a little bit further than the 73 Easting. It was about 738, about 800 meters beyond the 73 Easting, but the term 73 Easting for that grid line stuck as a location for the battle in this flat open desert. Given the equipment the Iraqis had, if they had had the motivation and training with that same equipment, would they have done much better? I think so. Hmm. Uh, we would still have defeated them because we had the advantage of surprise coming out of a sandstorm. They told us, uh, or some of the officers and NCOs that we captured, one of them in particular could speak very good English. He had, he was actually the brigade commander who had survived all of it. Uh, he had been a student at the Fort Benning Infantry School. Hmm. This is back in the 1980s when we were supporting the Iraqis against uh, Iran in the Iran-Iraq War. So he spoke reasonably good English, and uh, he said that, he quite frankly did not think that anyone could navigate in a desert uh, during a sandstorm. So he didn't expect us to move to the sandstorm. The truth is the Germans did that repeatedly in North Africa during World War II. 
we certainly could do it. We had the advantages of a global positioning system, but we also knew how to move in the desert in formation. Uh, but he didn't expect it. And so the element of surprise was with us from the beginning. And I think that that would have still given us the edge that we needed. And our gunnery was better. Our training was better. Our, you know, our preparation. I think we would have defeated the enemy, even if that enemy had been, say, Russian or Chinese or Korean. Now, the difference is that we probably would have taken more casualties. They would have gotten off more rounds successfully that would have hit targets because the Iraqi gunners weren't very well trained. They only shot a few rounds every year. And it, as it turned out, they really couldn't hit much that moved. And since we attacked on the move initially for the for the first phase of the battle, uh, that was the best thing that we could have done from the standpoint of survivability. So we, we were on them and killing them before most of them could react effectively to the attack. How many tanks were destroyed? Well, in the zone, we counted 93 T-72 uh, Soviet export tanks. And in the advance and in the ultimate, uh, you know, right along the 73 Easting, it was probably close to 30 or 40, uh, somewhere in that vicinity. But it was 93 total in our zone of attack, plus, you know, some number of uh, other armored fighting vehicles, things called BMPs. We even saw some BTR-60s, these wheeled things that uh, were very rapidly dispatched or very lightly armored, as most wheeled vehicles are and uh, large numbers of trucks and so forth, and uh, there were an awful lot of dead on the battlefield, which was uh, something that was unique, quite frankly, in that war. A lot of battlefields where great victories were claimed didn't have very many dead people on them, uh, quite frankly, because I think the enemy was already gone. And so in many cases, we attacked uh, equipment that was already abandoned. The enemy had left, and this is because of how slow we moved across the, the, the Iraqi desert, giving the enemy plenty of time to get out of town. But as I said, we hit the rear, rear guard, and this defense that they mounted uh, was a last-ditch effort. And so you had lots and lots of dead people on the ground. We captured perhaps five, 600 prisoners out of a force that was maybe 2,800. So we'll never know how many were killed because many of the kills also inside the vehicles were catastrophic. Mm. You know, these, the, the vehicle itself was blown to pieces. There were enormous fires. I mean, it, it never really got dark. And this attack started at about 18 minutes after 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And the fighting continued off and on until probably 10 o'clock. There was some more 10 o'clock at night. There, was, there were some more secondary explosions. But it really never got dark because of all of the secondary uh, hmm. explosions, the ammunition, the fuel blowing up. Uh, it was uh, it was quite spectacular. And in this uh, sandstorm, I was just curious about the the sand. What was your visibility? I mean, how far could you see in in one of these sandstorms? <laughs> well, that's a that's a good point. Uh, we had a lot of trouble seeing any great distance. The sandstorm's intensity ebbed and flowed during the day. It started out uh, early in the morning, uh, and it, it got worse towards the middle of the afternoon, and then it started to weaken and finally stopped entirely by about uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. Uh, so it, it came and went, and it sometime, sometimes you could see perhaps you know, 50 feet. At other times, you could see 100 feet. We had thermal sights in the tanks. At that point, we didn't have quite the, the thermal technology that we do now in the Bradleys, but we could see hot spots in front of us. We didn't always know what they were. 
I mean, quite frankly, when you look through the desert sand blowing and you see this hot spot, you don't know if you're looking at a camel or an enemy tank or an artillery piece or a group of enemy soldiers until you're much, much closer. You can't be certain. But we were able with a combination of the thermals. And the other thing is that we had practiced uh, the formations that we moved in at the troop and the squadron level. Troops, about 150 men. The squadron battle group itself was 1,100. We had 40, 42 tanks, uh, 42 Bradleys. Uh, we had eight artillery pieces in our own battery. We had a reinforcing artillery battalion that, that came up behind us later on. Uh, as I said, it was an 1,100-man formation, but we knew where we were because we'd practiced these formations so often that even though you couldn't see all the time, you knew who was on your left, who was on your right, uh, who was in front of you, and who was behind you. And that's part of the discipline and the training and the experience that paid such huge dividends because unlike many units, we, we did not have any fratricide. We did not shoot ourselves because everybody did understand where they were. And we also gave people plenty of room. Uh, the other units in the army that attacked crammed thousands of troops into very narrow corridors. Uh, whole brigades attacked in some cases in between five and ten thousand meters. Uh, whereas I put two troops forward within uh, ten kilometers, so that each troop had five thousand meters, and that enabled the troop commanders to maneuver their units, and it prevented them from shooting each other. I'm curious. The Bradley fighting vehicles were carrying infantry, I assume. Well, no, no, this was a cavalry unit, so we had men in the back, scouts, not infantry. I see. Uh, some had three or four men in, uh, men in the back. We didn't have infantry squads. But this was not an environment in which you would, wanted, you would have wanted to dismount. I mean, mm. quite frankly, if you dismounted, you were dead. And uh, the Iraqis did dismount a lot of infantry to fight us, particularly when we blasted through their positions and destroyed their armor. Large numbers of Iraqi infantry came out with RPGs and, and whatever else they had, machine guns. They did fire some anti-tank missiles, and uh, they died horrible deaths. Hmm. They were just cut to pieces in, in very, very short time by the tanks and Bradleys. We were firing 25-millimeter high-explosive rounds, uh, and, of course, you know, you had the 7.62 machine guns. You had two of those in every tank, and you had coaxially mounted a 7.62 machine gun along with a 25 millimeter on the uh, Bradley plus many of our soldiers kept their M16s nearby and uh, as strange as this may sound as they went by they would come out of the hatches with their M16s and open up on the enemy and kill the enemy at point blank range so the Iraqi uh, infantry was pretty useless and the without any covering terrain or trenches or pillboxes they were just no, there wasn't much they could do. Completely vulnerable. Yeah, once the once the Iraqi armor was destroyed and it was killed very quickly, and uh, their armored fighting vehicles, so their BMPs and so forth, were destroyed, so that they couldn't use those weapons, they were left with very little alternative but to turn to, you know, machine guns and and handheld weapons and so forth, and you know, against an armored force, it's disastrous. We found that out again in 2003. The armored force, which was the 3rd Infantry Division that led uh, all the way to Baghdad, uh, was within 50 miles of Baghdad in 2003 in four days and then was held back for five days. Uh, that's another story which I think is a sad one. But the 3rd Infantry Division cut right through everything because they were an armored force. Uh, armored forces are built to do that. Yeah. And that's what we did. 
I can't help thinking again about how we encouraged the Iraqi people to rebel, and they did, and we stood by while they were smashed. It was very upsetting. It was very upsetting. Do you think that this had uh, had a permanent negative impact on then our invasion in 2003 and the reception that we got from the people of Iraq? Well, it did in some cases. Uh, you know, the, w when we finished uh, the campaign, we ended up being sent up to the Euphrates River where we relieved the 82nd Airborne Division. And the 2nd Cavalry moved into these areas, and we cleaned out the remaining uh, Republican guards and so forth who were still south of the demarcation line. And, of course, the Shiite population greeted us as liberators. Uh, in one case, uh, people came out of their homes and chanting in English, we love George Bush. Mm. Uh, it was uh, really quite striking. Uh, they they were very happy to have us. Uh, they wanted us, obviously, to finish the job. The interesting part is that even the Republican Guard commander that we captured came to me on the night of the 26th of February while he was my prisoner. And in very good English, he said, uh, why don't you continue? Why have you stopped? You must go to Baghdad. You must cross the river. You must end this. And he, he said, you must end this. You must save Iraq from Saddam Hussein. This was a Republican Guard officer, and wow. uh, then he poured. He had spent uh, six years uh, fighting the Iranians, and he poured his heart out in English, explaining how Saddam Hussein had executed the best generals, uh, that he had paralyzed the force, much as Stalin paralyzed the Red Army during the initial uh, months of the German invasion in 1941. And uh, I, I think there was a real appetite to have us come in and do that. But I think what Americans need to understand is that while people in, in 1991 and again in, in 2003 wanted very much to have us remove the regime, they did not want us to stay and govern them. Mm -hmm. we, we are still non-Muslims, and we are not Arabs. And uh, to bring in large numbers of U.S. and British troops who are Christians and uh, administer an Arab country, as I think we've discovered in Iraq, was a catastrophe. It was something we should never have done, and it was never necessary because there were always people there willing to cooperate with you, provided they they ran their own show. In other words, they administered themselves. And ultimately, this thing we call the surge, uh, which has almost nothing to do with the troops and everything to do with huge cash payments to the former Sunni insurgents, who who are now 104,000 of them are on the U.S. Uh, Army payroll. Hmm. Uh, the, these people are being paid to essentially uh, not shoot at us and to cooperate with us. And they cooperate insofar as they keep the foreign elements of al-Qaeda out of their areas, which they didn't care for in any case. But they also enjoy autonomy. You know, they, they're, they're allowed to administer themselves. The sheiks, the tribal leaderships, the local leaderships are running everything. We are not. And so... For the moment, you, you've achieved the reduction in casualties, uh, you know, as a, as a consequence of this cash for peace program in Iraq. But the, the point is, no, there, there can be no long-term solution in Iraq or in any Muslim Arab country that is not of Muslim Arab invention. You can't impose anything on these people. It won't work. And so uh, when we pull out of Iraq, is it going to go into civil war? Well, I think when you leave, there's going to be some fighting. Uh, I, I think you're going to watch this facade that people promote that want us to stay there collapse. 
Whether or not Mr. Maliki will survive, I don't know. But there's no reconciliation between uh, the Sunni uh, Muslim Arabs and uh, the Shiite government in Baghdad. The Shiite government that we've helped to install is allied with Iran and is Iranian-backed. It's something that, you know, the, the leading figures, Petraeus and uh, Bush and others, don't want stated publicly, but that's in fact the case. We've installed a, an Iranian-friendly Shiite Arab government. Uh, there is going to be trouble. Uh, there is going to be some fighting. How long it will last, I think the sooner we get out, the sooner it will occur, and the sooner it will end. But you've also got other problems. You've got problems with the Kurds in the north, and uh, we captured some Kurds in, in 1991, and they are fundamentally different people. They're different culture, different race of people in their own eyes, and I think they're probably right. And they have different aspirations, and those aspirations uh, do not sit well with the Turks, or the Iranians, or with the Arabs in central Iraq. So there, there are going to be more problems. We cannot manage this. Uh, we, we, are, we are foreigners. This is not our country. Uh, we, we just need to end this huge, huge waste of time, money, and resources that is a, is a consequence of this destructive occupation and get out. And if we do that, things will, things will sort out. Has the U.S. Army been worn down? Has it lost equipment and lost uh, resources as a result of the long occupation in Iraq? Well, sure. I mean, keep in mind that the army that went in in 2003 was a miniature version of what had fought in 1991. There had been no real change other than a reduction in the number of combat troops and capability. They rode into Iraq on virtually the same equipment with minor modifications. The Army today is refitting and uh, maintaining equipment that was designed in the 60s and the 70s for use in the 80s and the 90s. Some of these tanks now are 30 years old. Same thing with the Bradleys. Some of them being uh, being rebuilt and improved, but this is this is all old equipment and old technology. But I think more important than the equipment problems is the fact that We've never reorganized ourselves to, to adapt to a very different world from the one that we've been living in. This is not the world of 25 or 30 years ago. That, that world long since ceased to exist. We have not organized differently to fight differently. And I'm not talking about running around chasing Arabs through the alley, which I think is a huge waste of time and unnecessary. Uh, I'm talking about a fundamentally different way to, to wage war, integrating our forces more effectively to, to get more bang for our buck. But there's also another aspect and, uh, that's really critical that is missed, and that is the human element. We, we have not reorganized in a way that is in the interest, the human interest of the American soldier. He's worn out. This business of sending people for 12 to 15 months to live in these enormous bases and then to periodically go out of them uh, and live, uh, live, you know, in these little outposts and, and conduct patrols, it's just worn out the force. And an awful lot of talent has left the force as a result, just thrown up their hands in disgust and said, this is it, I'm out. And I think it's also important to understand that we're not in a war. Uh, we have not been in a war. What we've been involved with are occupations. And the people that are at war during an occupation, unfortunately, are those soldiers, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains who are periodically under fire. For them, it's a war. But for the vast majority of people in the force, it isn't. It's just exhausting. It's tiring. It's wearing. It's consuming. But it is not a war in the sense that uh, we fling that word around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's this not. It's not World War II. It's not Korea. 
And, and in terms of, of comparing these two wars, what happened in 91 and what happened in 2003, how do we reconcile that it made no sense to advance in 93, but we decided to go in in 2003? Well, you know, that's, that's one of the questions that I raise. And at the end of the book, I make the point that in 1991, no one in the previous Bush administration cared what the Kurds and the Shiite Arabs ultimately built to replace Saddam Hussein. In other words, their attitude was that this was a matter for the people inside Iraq to sort through, let them remove the government and build their own government, and we would we would support them in any way possible. I think that was a very intelligent position for the first president, Bush, to take. Uh, the second time around, uh, we, we fell victim to the thinking that had preceded uh, the, the second Bush administration all through the 1990s under Clinton. Uh, this is the notion that you can export uh, Anglo-American democracy and ways of, of government and, and culture to other people's countries. You can't do it. It's this false assumption that we walked into Germany and Japan and transformed these countries into reflections of ourselves. We did not. The people in those countries rebuilt their countries. Uh, they, we helped them do it, but the people that lived there did it, and they reanimated existing institutions that uh, predated the Second World War. That didn't exist in Iraq. There was, no, there was no history of the rule of law. There were no pre-existing institutions in that sense, and we thought that we could simply impose our own. And again, you run up against the problem of a fundamentally different culture, a different people, Different, different religion, different language, and, and an understandable resistance to the imposition of something that they saw as inappropriate and unwanted. So whatever you get in Iraq, ultimately it's going to be of their invention, and it's not going to be Western secular democracy. Hmm. Absolutely no chance whatsoever of that occurring. I am talking to Colonel Douglas McGregor, and his book, Warrior's Rage, is coming out. And we'll be back with more after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. My website is jrnyquist.com. That's J-R-N-Y-Q-U-I-S-T.com. On air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 WIBG. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning. Now in life, you're allowed to support whoever you want, but in partisan politics, there are rules. To Grossman Afternoons. Someone suspects they're an illegal immigrant. The cop is more afraid of arresting them than of letting them go. Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays. That's how you're battling it. I like that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I think that's more than reasonable. I certainly, you know, we're talking about... $12 million here. I don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. We're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box, and with me is Colonel Douglas McGregor. He is author of Warrior's Rage, and it's uh, Naval Institute Press, is it not? Yes. And it's uh, coming out in the summer of 09, this coming summer. Right. Um, I am intrigued by what you've said about the generals not knowing what's going on at the front line. And uh, this is uh, something that 
you sometimes pick up on in the corporate world that the boss upstairs doesn't know how things really work on the ground. And I had this experience. I worked for a company. The bosses would make changes all the time and decisions, and they wouldn't consult anybody that was doing the jobs about whether this was smart. And they'd end up always having to retreat back and change what they were doing when they found that nobody could really do what they wanted. And so it was always back and forth, and it was extremely demoralizing to the business organization. Is this the kind of thing that goes on in the U.S. military? Oh, absolutely. All oh. the time. Uh, and and the, the worst part is that since we have not been in a quote-unquote real war, uh, where we're facing uh, you know what we would term a, an existential threat or a very serious threat, uh, there has been no real accountability, and because our soldiers, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains are in the combat forces are so good, almost anything they do will generally work against the very weak adversaries that we faced. I mean, the enemy in 2003 was a joke. I mean, you had men in pickup trucks charging U.S. tanks. It's absurd. That's why the 3rd Infantry Division got within 50 miles of Baghdad with one casualty. In the 7th Cavalry, I had friends that grew so tired of shooting Arabs in pickup trucks that they began driving over them in tanks. There's no enemy there, no, nothing of significance. Under those kinds of circumstances, to be blunt, the generals don't matter very much because the people on the ground will ultimately make it work. Uh, you know, we, we haven't had a situation, again, like World War II. Between March of 1942 and uh, May of 1945, 32 Army Division and Corps commanders were relieved of their commands. They were fired. These were major generals and lieutenant generals, and they were removed because they weren't successful. They didn't turn in the desired results. And that was a war that we made up our minds that we absolutely had to win, so there was no time or tolerance for ineffectiveness. We haven't seen anything like that since 2001. No one has ever been relieved who is a general officer in command of anything. And all the generals will be happy to tell you that they're extraordinarily successful and brilliant men. And that they've done everything right. Wow. <laughs> this is crazy. This is a huge difference that I don't think most Americans realize. And there's one other thing, too, that is fundamentally different today. We, we have this micromanagerial mentality that, despite claims to the opposite, is very prominent. We have people from top down uh, trying to manage everything. The generals are very concerned about their careers. They're concerned that something is going to happen that will jeopardize their future promotion. Uh, they, they're busy repeating ad nauseum whatever the, the public narrative is that the generals have decided they want the public to hear. And this has a, a very debilitating effect at lower levels. This is not a, a situation like France in 1944. There's one very famous incident that illustrates the profound difference. Omar Bradley, as you know, was the Army Group commander. He had the 1st Army and the 3rd Army under his command. After the breakout, he came to see Patton, who was in command of the 3rd Army, and he had to drive forward to Patton's headquarters, which was really a, a collection of, of vehicles that were driving all over the battlefield. He finally caught up with Patton after a couple of days, and he walked in, and the, he, Patton was standing in front of the map, and he was on the phone talking to one of his subordinate commanders, and he looked at the map, and then he listened to Patton, and he said, Good God, George, how do you control this thing? because it looked like complete chaos. Patton had corps racing across France in, in all sorts of directions, and Patton looked at Bradley and he said, Brad, I'm not trying to control anything. I'm just trying to command it. Well, there's a big difference between command and control. Command implies leadership really from the front. 
leadership that is informed and leadership that facilitates success, leadership that articulates the purpose, the method, and the end state that is understood from top to bottom in the organization, leadership that inspires and, and shapes the force. Uh, that's very different from control. Uh, what we've got in, in Iraq, what we've got in Afghanistan, what we've got across the forces right now is lots of control. We've got people trying to manage everything, control everything, to ensure that only those things happen that, that the senior leadership wants to happen. This is not a, a Patton-esque, free-reign environment by any stretch of the imagination. There's not much room for initiative at the lower levels. In fact, initiative will get you into a hell of a lot of trouble. That was part of our problem in 91. We, we, we were also faced with some of this. It was a constraint. It was a constraint I overcame and uh, fought against, but it's one that is very oppressive and overwhelming now. Uh, and I think it's, once again, because of the extreme weakness of the enemy. Remember, you're fighting people that have no air forces, no armies, no navies, no nothing. Uh, these, this, is, this is not a great and powerful enemy that we face in either of these places never has been. It's fascinating to think that our culture, which has gone through changes since World War II, that our army and our other institutions are affected by these changes. I, I wonder if you have any idea of when the officer corps became unaccountable, just as in some sense our business community in certain areas is unaccountable. What, when did this occur? When, when do you think it started, and do you have any ideas as to why? Well, I, I think you know, when you, you talk about accountability and the lack of it, uh, there's very little, almost no accountability at high levels. There is accountability at lower levels. The most professional people you've got in uniform are the people at the lowest levels. Uh, that's where the fighting occurs, and that's where, you know, really hard things have to be done. So that, that's where you find some serious accountability because people are being killed. It's at the high level where there is none. And I think it's a problem that reaches way back into the 1960s. If you look at the automobile industries, we, we hear a lot about Detroit right now. The big three automakers back in the 1960s grew very fat and rich because they reached a point where they could produce something, and regardless of what they produced, however big it was or how much gas it guzzled, the American public would buy it. The American public bought it because there was really nothing else out there for the American public to buy. Well, that all changed in the 1970s, as we know. The Japanese, the Koreans came on board, even the Europeans, and suddenly produced you know, products that were fuel efficient, uh, more reliable, and Americans are not stupid people. Americans are going to pick and choose what makes sense for them, what is uh, price-worthy, cost-effective, and so forth. And the big three automakers got into trouble, and they've never really recovered. They, they've really never come out of that, that mess that they were in. Well, I think the same thing applies with the armed forces. The last time that we fought in the field an enemy who was capable of really destroying us in the field was the, the Chinese army in 1951 and 52. Mm -hmm. uh, we, there were a couple of occasions fighting the Chinese where we very nearly lost uh, our forces in the field. Uh, we obviously had problems at the outset with the North Koreans and were driven back into Pusan. That, that's the last time that we faced what I would term uh, an existential threat in the field. We never faced that in Vietnam. We always held the advantage because of firepower and technology. And the enemy, though he was good, sacrificed millions to defeat us. 
the same thing has been true in Iraq and Afghanistan. The, the enemy's far weaker than the enemy we fought uh, in, in Southeast Asia in most cases. And the terrain has been very favorable to us, you know, especially for the use of our air power. And we've been able to shut down the enemy in many cases from the air using both unmanned and uh, manned aircraft. Uh, and again, the enemy's had no real air defense, no ability to attack us, uh, to negate any of our advantages. And yet, yet we've lost thousands of people. We've still had enormous problems on the ground, great difficulty coping. And ultimately, after many, many years, Petraeus turned to the cash for peace program, the, the payoff to the former enemy to get the enemy to stop killing us, even though we'd killed perhaps hundreds of thousands of him. So it, it, it's not a good picture. It's, it's frightening, and I think it's frightening because of the rigidity of the structures, the organization, the mentality, and the people at the top, and the absence of accountability. Yeah. And do you hold out any hopes that we're going to be able to reform our military system? No, not at the moment. Uh, I used to used to think it was possible, and I wrote two books on the subject. But I think the bureaucratic structures are very powerful. They're very strongly entrenched. It takes a president with a very clear picture of what he wants to change. Uh, it, 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 it's much more than uh, rhetoric. It, it, there's, you've got to come into office, uh, much as Teddy Roosevelt did in the early 20th century, with a purpose and say, I, I want a force that looks like this to do the following things. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, we have today fuzzy-headed visions of uh, America doing everything everywhere to everyone all the time. We have no distinction uh, between that which is vital and that which is perhaps at best desirable. Everything is being treated as though it's vital. It's the notion of the indispensable superpower that needs to bestride the world. This is all nonsense, and uh, we have to back away from this because we're broke. We're bankrupt, and that situation is not going to improve in the near term. So we can't afford to do everything. We need to make some prudent choices, but I'm not sure we will. Uh, I, I have this terrible feeling that we may see, at least for the first few months, a, a desire to tinker on the margins of what is a mess uh, when you have to go after the mess. So it's time to cut the Gordian knot. We can't spend $700 billion a year on defense. It's, it's hugely wasteful, and it's unnecessary. If the same poison has entered our economic system that it apparently exists in our military system, the whole bailout is merely another way of avoiding accountability. I think so. This is not a uniquely military problem. My concern is, is not so much what happens today or tomorrow, but military power takes time to build it is a profoundly challenging exercise because you have to combine human potential with technology, and you have to do it within an effective organizational form. Organization is everything. Organization reflects how you think and how you act. That's the problem in the economy with many of our businesses. We're organized badly, and the organization reflects old thinking, not new thinking. When you look at success stories, someone like Bill Gates and Microsoft, one of the things that you see is that his organizational approach was very different from everyone else's. So you need fundamental organizational change to reflect new thinking. You don't get new thinking uh, with new organizations. You don't put new wine into old wineskins, as I think someone intelligently pointed out many thousands of years ago. And I can't resist here at the end of our time asking you, who is your favorite general in history? <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. 
you know uh, that's 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 a tough question and you know it's it's hard it's hard to answer that one uh, because there are so many very good people out there and as soon as you pick one you slight everybody else let, let me mention a couple i think charles de gaulle was a very interesting figure he wrote a book during the period between world war 1 and world war 2 called future war and he talked about mobile armored formations and the criticality of having these mobile armored reserves to operate behind, uh, you know, forward lines of infantry and fortifications and so forth. And he was punished, and he was never promoted to brigadier general. Uh, he r remained a colonel until 10 days into the German invasion. Uh, the French parliament insisted that de Gaulle be given whatever French tanks were available, and sent into action, and he went out to take command. He was breveted to Brigadier General, not permanently promoted, but temporarily, so that he could command whatever tanks the French yeah. had. And uh, when he showed up to take command within this French corps, uh, the French general uh, said to him, well, I hope you're happy to go. You finally got what you wanted. <laughs> uh, this is in the midst of France's collapse and destruction at the hands of the Germans, which tells you something about the nature of military bureaucracies. But de Gaulle then leads France, as mm -hmm. we all know, and we know the rest of the story, and his emergence as president, and he never was promoted permanently to Brigadier General. And after the war, someone said to him, well, General de Gaulle, you're, you're still a, a breveted temporary Brigadier General, and you're in command of everything. Shouldn't we promote you to four, four stars? And de Gaulle looked at him and smiled, and he said, why? I'm in charge. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I know that de Gaulle is somebody that people attack, but I've always found him as a very endearing figure because he, he persisted, and he ultimately saved his country. It's a very wonderful mm -hmm. story, but he went through hell. And I'm afraid that, that any time people stand up to the bureaucracy, they go through hell. Another really great man who wasn't a general is Admiral Rickover, Hyman Rickover. He was probably the first Jewish admiral in the history of the United States Navy. Brilliant man. He drove people crazy, but he's responsible for the nuclear Navy. He did many, many things very, very well. And he had to wait until he was on the verge of retirement and then was ultimately promoted at the insistence of the Senate Armed Services Committee to rear admiral so that he could continue on active duty because he was considered a national security treasure by everybody but the admirals in the Navy. But Rickover said something that I think is true. He said, you know, if you have to ask for forgiveness, he said, ask God, because the bureaucracy will never forgive you. Oh, that's good. Um, Colonel Douglas McGregor, U.S. Army retired. His book is Warrior's Rage, The Battle of 73 Easting. It'll be available in local bookstores in the summer of 09, so don't miss it. And it's Naval Institute Press. Colonel Douglas McGregor, I want to thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Well, that was, that was fantastic. It was great. Well, hopefully you'll get some good feedback, and if you do, let me know. I will do that. All right. Bye-bye. I am Jeff Nyquist, and I'd like you to join me again next week at this same time. Until then, God bless and be well. Amen.